Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 10th of July 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, throw out government of the banks, by the banks, for the banks. And Morrison steers Australia to war. What's behind the curtain? Before we begin, Elisa, today is the, the day we're recording this is Friday. It's the last day to get in submissions to the, the Parliament's, the Senate's inquiry into the bail-in amendment law, which would stop the government's banking act being used to bail in deposits. Um, so by the time you're watching this, we'll, um, the, the deadline will have passed, but we're going to report how that has gone, uh, including how many submissions the committee receives, because we expect they'll get a lot. And this will be an issue over the next few weeks. Um, as that committee looks at those submissions uh, because hopefully this can be debated in Parliament in August. Now, say ho one of the reasons I say hopefully is um, as we <laughs> we're in lockdown central, we're in the, in the leper colony of Australia, and I'm not sure under the current restrictions governing Victoria for the next six weeks whether parliamentarians from here are going to be able to go to Canberra. And if, and if Victorian parliamentarians can't go to Canberra, I don't know if, if Parliament's going to sit. So it might, it might put the dates back a little bit. But nevertheless... This bail-in issue is going to be a big issue for the foreseeable few weeks. Yeah, so on to our first topic. Throw out government of the banks, by the banks, for the banks. And we're going to provide a bit of background to that bail-in um, law that you just spoke about, Robert, which is uh, designed to steal your deposits to keep a bank afloat. Uh, on the global financial front, we'll come to Australia in a moment and the implications here and why Morrison is acting for the banks. But the former... Uh, Governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, told the London Telegraph on the 25th of June, I think defaults could be the trigger of another financial crisis down the road. And he was referring to the accumulating debts. Uh, and he also referred to not only potential of business defaults, but government defaults as well. Adding to that, the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, James Bullard, told the London Financial Times on July the 2nd, unless the COVID-19 crisis comes under control, we could get a wave of substantial bankruptcies and that could feed into a financial crisis. The 2nd July Washington Post blared a fiscal time bomb is about to detonate between the expiry of enhanced unemployment benefits, which happens at the end of July in the US, and also states and municipalities with plummeting revenue and soaring expenses that are facing bankruptcy. Um, they're expecting that time bomb to get it, go off at any time. And the, the heart of this particular problem that they're talking about, Elisa, is so much of the global economy is based on debt and not productive debt, right? Everything is driven by debt. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that, that can seem to go okay for a while. But as Warren Buffett famously said, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Well. COVID-19 has been the hell of a tide going out, yeah. right? And now you're getting the problems. And all of the interventions which have been led worldwide by the Fed have, um, you know, 90% gone into banks. There's, you know, trickles that go into businesses and so forth, but it's all about propping up the banks. And uh, Bullard from the St. Louis Fed 
uh, talked about the incredible unity of action by central banks to ensure, as he put it, that the markets don't freeze up entirely because that's what gets you into a financial crisis, he said, when traders won't trade the asset at any price. So again, everything they're doing is aimed at saving the markets, not the people, and that is the problem. And the latest um, Bank for International Settlements annual economic report elaborated on that. They talked about the valiant effort of central banks globally acting in concert with fiscal authorities to deal with the crisis and how those interventions dwarfed the uh, interventions during the 2008 global financial crisis. In fact, in the month of January, which was you know, even really before the brunt of the COVID outbreak, the Fed purchased over a trillion dollars of US government bonds, which in one month equaled everything they purchased between November 2008 and June 2011, so the three immediate years after the GFC. And most central banks, the BIS said, exceeded their increase of such purchases during the global financial crisis. If we stick to the Warren Buffett analogy, what the, what the central banks are trying to do is keep the tide in. Right, um, mm. and and, and yeah. as it's going out, they're trying. They've got these pumps on land pumping fresh water <laughs> into the ocean to see if they can keep the uh, the ocean levels up. <laughs> it's a it's an exercise in futility if there's this collapse in in, in defaults. Right, um, there's this this collapse in the structures through a wave of defaults, and you know that's what um, they're totally panicked about. And of course, the same panic is in Australia at the moment because of this so-called September cliff when um, the additional um, unemployment benefits and extra JobKeeper benefits and so forth run out and extension of um, uh, loan deferrals of loan repayments also expire. Now banks have to that end to try to remedy that, that cliff edge have extended the holidays for loans, the deferrals of loans for an extra four months but it won't be automatic and in fact they're pleading with people to resume repayments um, which shows the real desperation because the volume of loans uh, that have been deferred is worth $236 billion which is the equivalent of 93% of the capital of the big four banks. Now the reason the banks, this is, this is quite important, the, the banks are couching this as, oh, we're helping out the Australian customers. We, we always do. And in fact, Anna Bly made this ridiculous comment about how the banks are always there in times of need. I think they believe their own ads. You know, the, the, the most despicable ads on television are always bank ads because they're the, they're the glossiest, they're the most heartwarming. You're, you're getting elevated in this emotional state. And at the end, it's for a damn bank, which you know is an evil institution that is a predator on society that destroys people's lives on a daily basis and gets away with it, right? So the, the banking association seems to believe their own hype, but what, they, what, they, what they're saying is for the public is actually not. This official extension of, of the deferral period is for their accounting. Mm. Because if it was not an official extension, they would have to account for those loans differently and then their books would be shot to ribbons, right? And that's the issue that they're facing. Yeah, so, so APRA has extended um, those concessions for how loans are accounted for which allows banks to keep lower capital requirements. If they suddenly had to start increasing their capital requirements, they'd be in real trouble. So that's real been trouble. extended for 10 months. Um, in addition, banks will not have to revalue their loan books if mortgages begin to plummet, which is another huge concession. That is a big issue right there. 
Um, this, this is a, what, if mortgages plummet, what it means is that the collateral against which their loans are written is becoming, is losing its value. So those loans are becoming increasingly unbacked. And the rules are, put up more, more capital against those loans, therefore, in, as a buffer in case there's a wave of defaults. APRA's just said to the banks, don't worry about that, carry on regardless. And it's a very similar thing what we reported last week where the, the, um, in the United States, the, the, authority, the regulators told the banks there, don't, don't worry about holding any capital against your derivatives, right? <laughs> Fly blind, you're up there going fast in the speed of sound, take off your helmet, take off your seatbelt, <laughs> take off any possible protection mm -hmm. measure and just go faster. Yeah, exactly. Um, and another giveaway that this is not directed at helping the people is that yet another of the concessions is that um, banks will be given a reprieve in terms of uh, complying with changes that were made to banking codes of practice that were ushered in after the Banking Royal Commission um, because, you know, the regulators don't think they'll be able to meet those timelines. So throw <laughs> every caution to the wind, as you were saying, yeah. um, and let all hell go loose because we have to save this system. Now, we've got a lot more to say about the housing sector, but we'll keep talking about it right after this quick break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report where we're discussing how our government is governing not for the people but for the banks and a lot of the uh, extensions and concessions that they're making which are allowing people to um, defer payments on their mortgages and so forth are actually aimed at the number one priority of preventing the housing bubble from bursting which would in turn trigger the bankruptcy of most of our banks if not all of our banks. Now, we wanted to give a quick update on some of the situation on the mortgage market front and the housing bubble front. Um, comparison site Mozo has just warned today that many mortgage holders could be forced to sell their homes once mortgage repayments resume. 43% of people will struggle to meet their loan repayments and with $175 billion in mortgages paused, they say that could mean $75 billion worth of mortgages going into default. Now, in addition, 53% of people are worried that they might have to sell their home. 38% of people on JobKeeper cannot cover their bills and when JobKeeper ceases, of course, that'll be dramatically worse. The latest figures from Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics from the end of June, which have just come out, show mortgage stress has increased to 39.1% from 37.5% in May, so it's moving fast. And in addition, rental stress is at 39.4%. And he added a new statistic. Uh, he said, moreover, a large, larger number of property investors with a mortgage 51.3% are underwater from a cash flow perspective. He said this is a new analysis which suggests investors are caught in the financial crisis headlights. And you can add to that with the Melbourne lockdown that 15% of Melbourne businesses don't know if they will reopen. So you've got commercial rents and mortgages as well that play well, into and that. that. And that was before the dramatic events here of the last week or so. Um, the, the other thing about Martin's figures on mortgage stress being in the high 30s is this time last year they were in the low 30s, right? So we've had a dramatic, you know, 10 percentage points increase, virtually 10 percentage points increase in that area. Um, and that's why they're worried that, that roughly that percentage you know, could default on their mortgages. And I don't, with, with the way government 
has um, the government policy is at the moment, uh, Elisa, that is the planning for the post-pandemic. I don't see how they're going to address that. But Scott Morrison doesn't think we're in a, uh, a housing bubble, a speculative one at least. Well, <laughs> what I read, what I heard this, it reminded me a few years ago, Malcolm Turnbull gave this speech to a Liberal Party conference in Sydney, and he and he said, the Liberal Party, he was comparing the Liberal Party to the Labor Party, he said, the Liberal Party doesn't have factions. And the whole Liberal Party audience burst out laughing because every single person in that audience knew it was a lie. Well, we've just had the current Prime Minister make an equally blatant statement where he said, oh, Australia's not like those other um, countries around the world. Our housing bubble isn't based on speculative investment, right? Um, any kind of speculation. Are you kidding me? That's all it's been based on. This is, this is incredibly well documented. It's been that case since uh, two, the year 2000, right? And in order to, um, every time the, the, the market has wobbled, the government has done everything it could to get more speculators into the market, mm. right? So this, uh, his capacity for, uh, what's scarier, if he actually believes what he's saying or if he's lying, mm. right? But nevertheless, it's the opposite of the truth. And that's why when we talk about things like bail-in, Elisa, it's not academic, right? Our banks are a house of cards. So yeah, the central banks around the world have this policy at the moment of just flooding the system with money. Right, like I said, try and keep the tide in, but the the debt structures that are there, if if there's a wave of defaults that cannot be stopped, right, I don't see how they can actually achieve that. In Australia, so much is based on housing values, which are purely speculative, and this is where you know we're looking at them come crashing down now. Yeah, and as you said, this is why they had to ram through a policy using ex extraordinary means to be able to bail in uh, investors' money and potentially depositors' money in February 2018, the, the so-called bail-in law. And just as an update on that, um, to show you, you know, the kind of thinking of the Bank for International Settlements and its little outfit called the Financial Stability Board, which have dictated this policy to the entire globe, the Financial Stability Board just put out a review of how the, the world is handling this too-big-to-fail issue, resolving that problem since the GFC. Um, and they talked about, they reviewed the various um, powers in the toolkits of regulators across the world to save banks in a crisis. They said that regimes need to have a broad range of resolution powers, including bail-in, and that, quote, these powers should be available under the legal framework, so not just some statutory thing in the fine print, but under the legal framework for the purposes of resolution and exercisable without the consent of shareholders, creditors, debtors or the firm in resolution. So even the bank has no say in it. But the regulators and those outside authorities can come in, control the whole game, uh, and you are the one that's going to lose. What people have to understand, one, one key comparison here is when, when the Bank for International Settlements and FSB do this, they're doing this for the banks, right? They serve the banks, not the public. But it's never any one bank. No one bank is important. The whole point of bail-in is if a bank gets in trouble so that doesn't become the, the trigger of a chain reaction, cut that bank off, right? And the way to think about it is like the mafia. How does the mafia, who, the mafia, mafia people get killed all the time, but who kills, who kills mafia dons? other members of the mafia, right? It's the, yeah. the, they're their own worst enemy, but the mafia 
continues. The mafia as an ent entity endures, and this is how the this is how the banks operate. Um, and uh, you know, so any you know, uh, uh, some some management of a local bank might say, "Don't bail us in," right? But that won't matter, right? That they want to have these powers so they can be exercisable, not just exercisable, independent of in in those terms that you said of the firm and the creditors, but also independent of what the government might say at the time, mm -hmm. right? This is powers for the regulator. And one thing quickly, um, an issue related to this bail-in question is the question of cash bans, which we've, which we've been campaigning against. So as we said in the in recent episodes of the show, there's no, there's no health reason to ban cash. But now we've got Woolworths, right, which has, wants to be an insurer and all sorts of things as well, has come out with a policy in the metro areas of Sydney and Melbourne to run its stores completely cashless. People should object to that. Right, get the material off our website about why this is unfounded, unnecessary, and go and tell Woolworths you're not going to shop there if they ban cash. We cannot let them bring in a cashlessness by stealth, because the only beneficiary of that is the banks, who can then get. We'll all be trapped inside them, mm -hmm. right, and can't escape things like bailing. So keep needling your politicians about these issues, particularly bail-in, as in the next session in August, um, the legislation put up by Senator Malcolm Roberts to take deposits explicitly away from bail-in provisions is coming up, so you need to get them focused on that. Yep. Now we'll be back right after this break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Morrison steers Australia to war. What's behind the curtain? So the Prime Minister made an announcement a week ago about a $270 billion defence spend uh, and in addition enhancement of spying capabilities and extra monies funnelled in there. But it has to be viewed in the context of a global shift where the United States and the United Kingdom for some time have refocused their strategic military and defence doctrines on the Asia-Pacific region or what they prefer to call the Indo-Pacific region. Um, and part of that is a recently announced expansion of NATO into the Pacific region as well, which remember is the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation and which should have been shut down following the um, collapse it, of the Soviet a, it Union. Was a, it, was a, it was a defensive treaty to guard Europe against the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no... Even Malcolm Fraser said this. There was no reason for NATO anymore. Instead, mm. what you're talking about is NATO, that North Atlantic Treaty Organisation is now expanding into the Indo-Pacific. Well, there's no other oceans left, Elisa. It's the whole damn world. Well, exactly. <laughs> and um, NATO Chief Jens Stoltenberg explicitly talked about in his NATO 2030 campaign that NATO has to become more global and others, other strategists have backed him up uh, by saying that um, uh, NATO should have even a military headquarters in the Pacific in one of our ally nations. So Australia will be on that list or Japan or if not both. Um, now I want to play a couple of clips from what Scott Morrison said and what you'll notice is that he used the same language of as these um, UK US defence doctrine changes made clear they view major powers like the like China and Russia as our strategic competitors i.e. enemies. Now we must face that reality understanding that we have moved into a new 
and less benign strategic area, one in which the institutions of patterns of cooperation that have benefited our prosperity and security for decades are now under increasing, and I would suggest almost irreversible strain. The Indo-Pacific is the epicentre of rising strategic competition. Our region will not only shape our future, increasingly though, it is the focus of the dominant global contest of our age. And it is in our region that we must be most capable in the military contributions we make to partnerships and to our ever closer alliance with the United States, which is the foundation of our defence policy. The security assurances, intelligence sharing and technological industrial cooperation we enjoy with the United States are and will remain critical to our national security. They are enduring. But if we are, a better, if we are to be a better and more effective ally, we must be prepared to invest in our own security. Well, that's what Morrison's doing there is picking a side. Now, maybe Australians think, because for 70 years we've had this US alliance, well, yeah, sure we're on the US's side, but it's not China that picked this fight. It's the United States that picked this fight and the United Kingdom that, that picked this fight. And we've picked a side. And we've played clips on this show a few weeks ago with people like statesmen like the former, late former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser saying Australia should have an independent foreign policy that we can talk evenly to both sides. No, we're not. We're picking a side. But here's the dirty little secret. That's, by picking a side, we justifies a huge amount of military spending. Mm. What does that mean? It means a lot of money to military arms manufacturing companies. And they're the ones that fund this outfit called ASPE in Australia, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, that spends all day every day telling us how we've got to side with America because China is such a threat. And they're funded by these same companies, right? And they had a huge payday with Morrison's announcement on this. Yeah, and um, so Morrison, in conjunction with this, announced an extra $1.35 billion to enhance cyber security through a new initiative called the Cyber Enhanced Situational Awareness and Response. I mean, you wouldn't even think they'd have anything else to spend money on. They've announced <laughs> initiative after initiative with the new Australian Cyber Security Centre. Some of this money will be funnelled through the Australian Signals Directorate for intelligence sharing. But then you have Home Affairs that's also pushing for a new countering foreign interference unit, yet another unit to crack down on fake news. Um, well, what they call fake news, they yeah. get to define what fake news is, i.e. This, this channel here would be called fake news to them. Yeah, it, but it affects everything too across the board. For instance, since April, the banks have been sharing data from consumer accounts and transactions on a weekly basis with the government so that in this crisis period, governments can make decisions on an informed basis. So they anonymise and aggregate the data. But this is, you know, what big scandals were over about Australian Signals Defence spying on Australian bank accounts and other things uh, raised by Anika Smethurst and so forth. The other thing that's been raised by Karen Middleton this week in the Saturday paper is the use of Henry VIII clauses in Parliament where during the period of lockdown the government passed laws that cannot be disallowed by the Parliament, even by a majority vote, because it's an extraordinary circumstance. That's a very important point. When you say pass laws, people, don't, don't, people shouldn't be confused by that. They just basically declare the laws. They don't actually pass them through Parliament in the first place. And what there's normally this backstop where when a government resorts to that, kind of like the US President's executive orders, the Parliament can disallow them. In these clauses, under the cover of the pandemic, they've said, um, no, no, these ones can't be disallowed. Mm. So we've got a government ruling by decree at the moment. That's right. And when you have 
the enemy image of China or Russia being put up there, the government is able to do things they couldn't otherwise do under that excuse. And in fact, a paper that was put out at the end of the Cold War by Russian and American professors said that the hysteria about the outer threat is often used as justification for secrecy and suspicion, covert actions, policies creating mobilised societies, artificial national unity, witch hunts and policies suppressing dissent. But read more about it in the Alert Service and join us next week. Thank you.